Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Port Arthur, Texas, Community Resistance versus the Climate Change Nexus. I will be interviewing John Beard Jr., founder and CEO of Port Arthur Community Action Network. Also known as PECAN, they are an environmental and social justice and community development organization based out of Port Arthur, Texas. John Beard Jr. is a former oil employee turned advocate. He retired from ExxonMobil Corporation with 38 years of service in process, maintenance, and emergency management. He is also a former city councilman and has over 33 years in active public service on numerous city and state boards and commissions. Unbeknownst to many, the United States is soon to be the largest global exporter of oil and gas as a result of the Texan-Permian Basin expansion. The communities of the Gulf of Mexico are at the nexus of climate change and community resistance. Port Arthur, Texas is home base for the largest oil refinery in North America and a dizzying toxic array of fossil fuel and chemical facilities. But the people are stepping up to say no more. Port Arthur Community Action Network, also known as PECAN, is raising the alarm, holding the polluters accountable, and paving the path to transition away from an extractive economy to one that supports restorative justice. Drilling enabled by the fracking boom has more than quadrupled in the past decade and is expected to grow aggressively in the upcoming years. Across the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana, petrochemical corporations are racing to build new pipelines, oil and gas terminals and processors, and massive plastic-producing plants. If allowed, this would increase the threat of climate disaster and further pollute the most vulnerable Black, Indigenous, and low-income communities who have suffered far too long the disproportionate impacts. For decades, communities such as Port Arthur, Texas, have been exposed and poisoned by corporations. However, across the region, people are resisting the industry-heavy footprint. They may often face a wall of indifference from industry-captured regulators, politicians, and judges. But nonetheless, the advocates persist, and they win. Our guest today, John Beard Jr., is helping to mobilize his community of Port Arthur and the Southeast Texas region. As a former oil employee turned advocate for environmental justice in the place he has lived his whole life, he founded the Port Arthur Community Action Network. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, Port Arthur, Texas, Community Resistance versus the Climate Change Nexus. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest, John Beard Jr., founder and CEO of Port Arthur Community Action Network. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Thank you, Jessica. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So let's jump right in. John, you are 
based out of Port Arthur, Texas, a city that's 90 miles east of Houston and across Lake Sabina from Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. Your city is known for the largest oil refinery in North America and really many other fossil fuel and chemical facilities. Paint us a picture of Port Arthur, Texas, for those that are not familiar with your town. Well, first of all, let me say to your listeners and that audience, good day, good evening, or whatever time it is for you. Glad to be here once again. When you get a chance and look at the map, whether it's on the Weather Channel or on your TV or station or whatever, uh, where the Gulf of Mexico and Texas and Louisiana meet, that's Port Arthur. Simplest way I can put it. So if you got a little geography, you shouldn't be able to, you can't miss us. <laughs> We're right there uh, on the border with Louisiana, as well as the Gulf of Mexico, right off of Lake Sabine. Beautiful area. What is the the majority of the people who are living there? You know, what the, there, you have all these fossil fuel extractive facilities that the refineries that are there. Tell us a little bit about what is happening in your city and, who, you know, the, the population that resides there. Yes, well, first off, Port Arthur is a city of about 53 to 55,000 in population. It's largely a majority-minority city made up mostly of people of color, African-Americans, the largest percentage of which, and Hispanics, and then some Vietnamese and some Caucasians also. We're situated here because of, in large part, our proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of people think it's based on oil, but it was really based on rail and steel because the founder of Port Arthur, Arthur Stillwell, a, uh, I guess you'd say, not philanthropist, but uh, some a gentleman that was seeking his fortune out of New York uh, and worked for the Kansas City Southern Railroad, wanted a southern terminus near the Gulf of Mexico so they could ship goods and products all over the world. And they didn't want to be in Galveston, so they chose Port Arthur, Port Arthur because it was more inland and less prone to flooding. But we have had significant flooding over our history. But the picture I'd like to paint for your audience is to imagine a city that is virtually surrounded by refineries, surrounded by LNG facilities, two of which are currently in operation, and a third that's trying to locate here, your dear old Semper out of California. You have an Oxbow Calcio 90, which basically takes raw materials and products to uh, from what's called petroleum coke and processes it to be shipped to other parts of the world. And you have a lot of tank farms. We have tank farms that are larger than some neighborhoods and communities. And they're in very close proximity to where people live. We also have a port. We have a sizable rail uh, yard and rail shipping facility next to the port. And then you also have a facility that ships what they consider renewable energy, but really it's our beautiful East Texas forest, chops it up and makes it in small pellets and ships it overseas to Europe. And all of these are sources of pollution and contamination which makes it very difficult for people here from a health standpoint in terms of the air quality and the quality of life. That's a great lead into my next question. What is it like living next to an oil and gas refinery, many oil and gas refineries and chemical processing plants? Well, I remember when I was in school, you know, and our school system has a study at the time I went to school, and don't ask me how long ago that was, <laughs> but it's been a while. But they would uh, mention that some of the city streets even go through these refineries, and that's true. But the people that live near the refineries live, in some cases, across the street from the fence line, or some mere two to three blocks at the most from the fence line. Some of them are within 50 feet of tank farms that hold volatile chemicals and materials, and some of those which are toxic. 
So when you come to Port Arthur, unfortunately, you'll be inundated with a lot of smells that you wouldn't probably smell anywhere else. And while we've become used to it and accustomed to it, because we smell it all the time, we don't pay it a lot of attention. Matter of fact, when I was growing up, my dad said whenever I turn up my nose to some of these smells, depending on where we would go or if the wind would change, he said, son, don't turn up your nose at that. That's the smell of money. But what we've come to understand is it's the smell of death because those substances and all, when you smell them in the air, that's really particulates of that substance. And a lot of it can be carcinogenic, can be mutagenic, and it also can be toxic and hazardous to your health, which is why Port Arthur has twice the state and national average for cancer, heart, lung, and kidney disease. It's because it's in the air we breathe, and we breathe it every day. And the EPA declared Port Arthur, Texas, as one of 10 what they call, quote, showcase communities, one of 10 in the nation. What do, What is a showcase community? What does that exactly mean? And how is it related to the health of the community from these impacts of the local industrial facilities? Well, you know, I, you and I talked about that previously, and that can really that's really an odd kind of name for it. Their intent was to show that industry and the community could work together and coexist. But nothing could be further from the truth. If it's a showcase, it's a showcase of how disasters, polluting industries and toxic industries such as petrochemical industry can be to a community. You know, I don't think we would be in the condition of having twice the state and national average for those diseases I mentioned if they weren't if it weren't for those very refineries and petrochemical facilities and uh, produce production facilities for petroleum coke or even for wood chips and wood products. So if we didn't have that. Maybe the air would be cleaner. Maybe people could live longer. You know, today we buried a close friend of mine that worked at the plant. He never got to retire. You know, he'd been there for 38 years. He didn't get a chance to retire. And matter of fact, two other friends of mine passed away within the last week to 10 days. And Jessica, I was saying here in Port Arthur, if you would parachute in or land here, or walk the city streets and talk to people, and you came up on a Port Arthur resident and asked them if they were, you know, a resident and lived here, and asked them this question. You asked them, do they know of anyone or, or that either has cancer or died from cancer or is under treatment or remission from cancer? And you would not find a single person of adult age would tell you they don't know of anyone like that. And that's scary when you consider a city as small as ours. And, you know, it's kind of a hometown atmosphere. Everybody virtually knows everybody. And no one can tell you that they don't know of anybody. They don't know of anyone like that. That's really scary. That is scary. The number you shared with me previously was something like two times the state average for cancer. That's right. That's right. Uh, yes. You know, I like to tell the stories a lot of times of some of the people here. In the case of uh, one, Etta Hebert. And Etta lives within two blocks of the largest refinery in the country. And Etta is a, is a cancer survivor, but has only recently found out that she has contracted another form of cancer. Etta's husband is in hospital from cancer. Etta's brother, Eddie, was died over a year ago from prostate cancer. Etta's daughter, Angela, is in remission from cancer. And two of Etta's friends who, when they graduated, left home and went out, made their fame and fortune. And, you know, they would communicate over the years, say, hey, well, when you retire, come on back home. It's a good place to be. You know, rent's cheap and easy. You can build a nice home here for where you're at. You know, it'd be like old times. Within a year, one contracted cancer and one died from cancer. So that's that's very problematic. Then you have people like Annette Mitchell, retired school teacher in her 80s. And Miss Mitchell has to take breathing treatments several times a day. And basically her life is tied to an oxygen machine because of, you know, 
COPD that she has. has. So that that's just some of the people that I know of uh, that, that have a number of illnesses. Some of them have young children and grandchildren that are more than toddlers and having to take breathing treatments or be on a nebulizer. So for America to have oil and gas, for planes to fly and ships and all of that, and to produce these chemicals that make life possible in a lot of ways, we're sacrificed to do it. Port Arthur is a sacrifice, though, because to have all of that, we have to breathe this foul, polluted air, and it's and it's it's very difficult. Life here is difficult because of that and because of the industrial pollution. Now, in your former life, uh, you used to work for ExxonMobil for 38 right. years. You're yes. a refinery operator. You were also an industrial firefighter, and you were also a city council member. What led you to shifting direction and becoming an environmental justice campaigner and the founder of Port Arthur Community Action Network? Well, actually, even though Pecan is only a little over three years old, because we really started in 2017 and officially 2018, it actually got its start in 2014. And that was because the uh, one of the companies here, Flint Hills Resources, was being sued by the EPA and the Justice Department because they released benzene into the air that flew into a historically black neighborhood and community in Port Arthur. And the settlement that was offered, when I found out about it, settlement that was offered, they basically gave the city of Port Arthur about 2 to $3 million for, to buy clean diesel fuel trucks, the trucks that use clean diesel. And the community that was affected by this got 350000 to a project for energy efficiency to help their homes be cooler in the summer or warmer in the winter. I thought that was a miscarriage of justice because the two men who lied about the release of this benzene over several months on this community received time in prison and the city got this money when it already had money available. So we did some things and had several conversations with the EPA and the Justice Department about it. However, we were unsuccessful in stopping that or changing. And because of some things that happened, in organizations, sometimes the initiatives and direction basically get confounded or confused because there's some that want to do one thing and another. And because of that inability to come together, I basically let the organization basically go away. But then Harvey hit in 2017, and we started doing things to try to help the community and help people recover. And in the course of that, we came into looking at some of the pollution that happened and all of that. And matter of fact, I retired just after uh, that period of time. So having lived in a fence line community of the west side of town that's surrounded on two sides by refineries, one by a tank farm, the other by the port and other industrial facilities, plus a former Superfund site and a former a metal, a heavy metals recycling facility, we're virtually, like I said, surrounded and heavily and unduly impacted by this. So having been raised in that environment, seeing and understanding the injustice and understanding that these companies weren't doing their very best to protect the communities, I basically decided to take up the mantle and the fight to try to get some justice for people that live here in Port Arthur, to clean up the air, clean the environment, and improve the quality of life. Do you think that your experience as a working for ExxonMobil has helped you in your current endeavors, that you're able to have this background knowledge that you're able to pull in to what you're trying to achieve? Most definitely. I understand the chemical substances that are produced in most of these plants, chemicals and things that are used as a byproduct and aid in the process. Uh, a lot of folk, as I like to ask sometimes when I'm in certain circles, 
when you pass by one of these refineries, do you know what the, that equipment is or what it does? Do you know the name of it? Do you know how it operates? You know, I have a depth of understanding there, not only from the standpoint of having helped produce oil and gas, but also from the extent of having worked on the equipment that does it, from the maintenance side as well as the production side. Then as an emergency responder, as a firefighter, hazardous materials handler, and, and dealing with these emergency management situations in the plant when they occur, that gives me an even better knowledge of how we have to protect ourselves and doing our jobs there with toxic substances, and also to make sure that the community is not affected because they didn't sign up for that. They, they, are, they are, you know, at the whim of the direction of the wind and the care and processes that we do to make sure that we don't allow these substances to get out into the community through the air, water, or the land. So having that basis and knowledge enables me to better serve and help people. Then being a public servant as a city councilman, I'm fairly well known. I think my record speaks for itself and the work I did there. So people have confidence in me and they understand where I'm coming from about this and they don't understand my commitment because I live in the same areas they do and I experience the same things. So I think this gives me a very unique skill set to be able to address the environmental pollution, come up with solutions for that and also ways that we can pursue getting justice for communities like Fort Arthur. Well, we're going to bring this conversation back after the break, do a quick shout out to our stations and bring this conversation right back in regards to Port Arthur, Texas, what's happening down there and the great work that you and many others are doing. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to Port Arthur, Texas Community Resistance versus the Climate Change Nexus. With host Jessica Aldrich, myself, and guest John Beard Jr., founder and CEO of Port Arthur Community Action Network. If today's show has sparked an interest, we recommend that you also check out Eco Justice Radio's Plastic Plague series, where we speak with other leaders living in the Permian Basin and the Gulf Coast areas who are standing up against the oil extraction industry and connecting the dots to the plastic boom. John, you have been discussing the, what it looks like with the oil refineries, the chemical processing plants in Port Arthur, Texas, you know, how this is affecting the communities. You mentioned tank farms, and I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with those. What is a tank farm and what risks do they present? Well, basically, the easiest way I can describe it to you is imagine a large area of land that is surrounded by a levee or a dike. And there's a tank inside of it, or several tanks. And each one of those tanks has a levee around it that acts as containment should the tank rupture or leak. Those tanks contain crude oil. They contain gasoline, naphtha, light, heavy naphtha, liquid products, liquid feed for the refinery, as well as liquid products. Now, the danger in that is that sometimes there are accidents. Those tanks leak because valves fail or Something in the process causes those tanks to overflow. Matter of fact, about 25 years or so ago, better, one of the tanks at Valero's refinery ruptured and caused the evacuation of 10,000 people 
in the close vicinity of uh, that tank on the west side of town. Matter of fact, also after Hurricane Harvey, I think it was September 17th, one of the tanks caught fire and it, it put huge volumes of black smoke into the air. And what's so funny about it, our state agency that monitors these things, the TCEQ, sent people out to measure, you know, the level of pollution that was given off. And they said, oh, there were no real detectable levels. But yet in front of my home, I was being interviewed by a local TV station and the ca- a reporter and the cameraman. And we were outside virtually gagging from the fumes. And it was so bad that, matter of fact, one of the, uh, the reporter, I think, said she could almost taste it in her mouth. So I'm, now I'm pretty sensitive to it also. And I can, when it's real strong, I can almost taste it. It's almost like you took gasoline, put it in a glass and drank it. Your mouth tastes like that. So if you imagine the smell and imagine it in your mouth, that's what it's like when you have these things happen or when a tank loses its containment or when the tank is not sufficiently vented. And as I was telling you, there are places in Port Arthur where people live less than 100 feet from these tanks and they're in close proximity to them. And even if they're farther away, the problem is that if the tank has a leak or something of the sort and the wind picks it up, it brings it into the community because the community is eventually surrounded by the tank farms and vice versa. So it poses a health problem and a, and a hazard and a risk that's not, you know, not good for people at all. No, not at all. So something that people might be a bit more familiar with, plastic. Are they manufacturing plastic, new plastic products in Port Arthur, or maybe not the products, but the pellets so that they can create the plastic products in the future? So are they are they manufacturing new plastic in Port Arthur? And what is the correlation to oil and gas refineries? And, and what does this mean from a health perspective? Well, what you got to remember is, is that plastics come from petroleum, from crude oil. And the crude oil processing that goes on in refineries creates the base feedstocks for those plastics, paraxylene, other forms of plastics, ethylene and so forth, is what you, you use to make the plastic and the plastic pellets you talk about, some of which are manufactured by plants that are in proximity to the refinery and the chemical plants, and some of them that are you know remotely away, but they're in the area. But mostly what Port Arthur has is the processing that makes those chemical precursors that you use to create plastics possible. And those plastics are everywhere. Matter of fact, one of the companies only recently bought the company I told you about, Flint Hills Resources. It's a chemical company. Well, they bought that company. And now they're also planning to build a $6.6 billion chemical plant to build more plastics. So what we have going on here in Port Arthur is not just the expansion of crude oil process, but also the expansion of creating more plastics. Because if they process more oil, that's more feedstocks to create more plastics. And that's the cycle. Where is the oil and gas that is being processed in Port Arthur, Texas? Where is it coming from? Many sources, but a large percentage of it comes from the Permian Basin out in West Texas, which has some of the largest oil and gas reserves in the world. And some of it is still coming from Canada. You know, everybody might be praising President Biden for having stopped uh, one of the pipelines. But that was only one of four pipelines. And that pipeline had really not even gotten started. That's the reality of it. There's still pipelines that are bringing it down here, right here in Port Arthur, Texas. But on top of that, they're also shipping it by rail. And they're shipping it by barge and by other boats and other means. So they're finding ways to do it. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about the liquefied natural gas and how they want to export it in ships or use pipelines to pipeline it into 
export facilities here in Port Arthur. But now they're even talking about using tank trucks like you see to transport oil and gas all the time to uh, uh, convenience stores and service stations. Well, now they want to take this and use tank trucks to do it. Now, what's dangerous about that is that not liquefied natural gas, when it expands, expands for a gallon, will make uh, one gallon of liquefied natural gas will make 600 gallons of vapor. So imagine that one tank truck, but multiply another 599 that same size. Then imagine this scenario, which is something we found out about recently, very recently, that happened in 2018. Uh, one of those LNG facilities, matter of fact, Chenier in Louisiana, found that they had some defective equipment on two of their tanks, which means if there was a leak, that those tanks could potentially blow up and blevy because the vapor would escape and being heavier than air with coastal on the ground and less than a half and less than a mile from that facility are people in homes along Lake Sabine and along the ship channel. And those people would have been in harm's way. That vapor cloud, if you ever seen one of these tanks, they are a couple of hundred feet wide and at least a hundred feet tall. And remember that one tank will make 600 tanks of gas. If you ignite that gas, to me, that's the equivalent of a nuclear bomb going off in the vicinity of Port Arthur. And with two of them being close together, it's quite possible that it would be a chain reaction. And each one of those facilities has five or six of those tanks. So do the math and imagine how big that would be if just one of those tanks would rupture. And they found two of them that had significant leaks and significant problems. Matter of fact, last we heard, and they're not very forthcoming with information that those tanks have been taken out of service and also that they've been fined over two, $2 million because of that. Yeah, but how many more of those tanks are in service that we we have no idea, right? That, right. that and, are. And, 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 and the other thing I wanted to, to note too for our listeners is that, that the fossil fuels are not just coming from Canada, but they but also offshore and Central America as well. I mean, it's Canada's some not the only is, international supplier. Some of it is, but we are not we are not importing as much oil as people think. We mm-hmm. are a net exporter of oil and gas, which means we're exporting more than we're shipping in. And the, the premise that was always said was that by us drilling more and using more of our own oil, we become energy independent. Yeah. But that's not happening. Yeah. That equ- so that tells you that that line of thinking, that equation doesn't work. Because gas prices are still high and we're drilling, baby, drilling. And well, a lot of people think, d- don't realize that we're, we have this, that we are so rich in oil supplies and, and in our, our drilling of this material. They think that we're still so incredibly dependent on, you know, offshore means when we're truly not. And, and maybe this is a really good opportunity for you to describe to our listeners the Permian Basin. And why it's so significant to the global oil and gas supply? Well, we have a we have a saying in this movement. I mean, matter of fact, I belong to an organization called the Permian Gulf Coast Coalition. That's made up of Permian Basin in the eastern part of New Mexico, West Texas, and the Texas Gulf Coast. Gas is so plentiful in the Permian Basin that, well, it doesn't exactly seep out of the ground. But because there's so many wells that are unmaintained and uncapped, thousands of them, that it virtually does. Uh, Sharon Wilson has a camera that she uses, and she can take people out and show them this gas that's just streaming, and you can see it. 
there are now satellites that can, from space, look and see how much gas is escaping like that. But then you also, and that gas going into the atmosphere is 80 times worse in terms of its global warming effects than carbon dioxide. So that's a problem. So we call it the Permian climate bomb or gas bomb, because that is really one of the big drivers of this. But not only are they taking this gas out of the ground, they're taking it and shipping it to Port Arthur for refinement and also for export to other countries. And that creates a problem because now you're taking this gas that while it's cleaner than burning fossil fuels for generating power or running equipment, it also has a, a harsher impact because in Texas, basically Texas never met a, a, a permit they didn't like. And there's very lax enforcement of the rules and laws to protect the air and the environment. So therefore, the companies don't feel a need to cap those wells properly or to maintain them or to see that they don't leak and leach out all of this stuff. Sometimes as much gets leaked into the air than what is actually burned and sold in America. And there wow. are trillions of cubic feet of that in the Permian Basin. And it's so the that, largest. That climate, so we like to say that climate bomb is really a bomb that if it goes off, can virtually, you know, change life as we know it because of the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the nature of the methane gas. And it's the largest oil producing region in the United States and right. very well set up to be the largest oil producing region in, in the world. And, right. and, the, and the we're not hurting for oil here. Right. No, we're not hurting at all. So no. again, it and begs I, the question, why is gas high? And it's, and exactly. it's, not, it's high because this is a world market. It's not just, it is just dependent on the U.S. You got Russia and you got Saudi Arabia and they're in a bit of a battle to Keep prices either low or high. Russia wants it high. Saudis want it low. So it helps them and it well, it helps us. But then you've also got to look at the fact that the gas we're exporting to other countries, gas is cheap here, but it's five times higher overseas because they have a great need for it and they're willing to pay for it. So mm -hmm. it's drill, baby, drill and sell, baby, sell. And it has oh, yeah. very little to do really with energy independence. It's about making money. Exactly. I want to mention to our listeners, too, that if you want to check out Sharon Wilson, I recommend that you check out our Plastic Plague series. That's a seven-part Plastic Plague series that Ecojustice Radio did a um, year or so ago. We can link it with our show as well so that those that check out our show on social media here and look at our blog, we'll link it there, too. I want to go back to you mentioned a city called uh, Nederland. Energy Partners has a pipeline that connects to this small city of Nederland, Texas. And it's how would it travel or is it, through very sensitive habitats, including rivers, a lake, a wildlife refuge, and an estuary? Can you tell us about this Energy Partners? I think it's a proposed pipeline, correct? Right, right. right. Energy Partners is owned by uh, Kelsey Warren. And Energy Partners is... I guess I will call it, and I, I nickname all of these things that a serial polluter in terms of its maintenance, you know, of these pipelines that they're in charge of. But this pipeline, and it's called Blue Marlin, is designed to export our crude oil that comes into Needland overseas through a 42-inch pipeline that will basically leave Needland, Texas, which is north of Port Arthur, go under the Natchez River around and through what's considered Bessie Heights Marsh, that sensitive environmental estuary where the baby crabs and fish and shrimp and all, you know, come from. And then just south of the 
outlet of the Natchez River into the Sabine, into Sabine Lake, would travel 12 of the 19 miles through Sabine Lake, through oyster beds and sensitive fishing areas that, that are a great part of life and part of the great quality of life that we have here in terms of that kind of recreation, and then turn into the Sabine Wildlife Refuge in Louisiana, in, Cam in Cameron Parish, and then proceed to a offshore oil port 80, 90 miles out in the Gulf for export. We are already mounting an effort to address that, I myself and several other organizations. And while some may want to fight the, the uh, facility itself out in the Gulf, we believe that if you kill the pipeline, you kill the project. And that 42-inch pipeline would be transferring up to 80,000 barrels an hour of crude oil out to that super tanker, which is larger than a football field. So can you imagine a tanker wow. larger two or three football fields long that can hold over a million barrels of crude oil? So we, so by, you know, and that creates an ecological problem because even if you got a pinhole leak in that pipeline with the amount of pressure and that it has to have to push that oil out offshore to that distance, even a pinhole leak would substantially alter the landscape because of the oil it gets in the water. You know, I've been told that a quart of oil can spoil the amount of water that would fill an Olympic-sized pool. One quart, and that's over 250,000 gallons in an Olympic-sized pool. So you can imagine what it would do something like Lake Sabine or places like that. And if it gets on the land and gets on the sea animals and mammals and contaminates the, the estuaries where the fish and crab and all, you know, start out from, you've ruined for decades, possibly, prime fishing and recreational areas and locations. Not to mention the fact that we eat the shrimp and the fish that come from there. So now you yeah. affect the food supply. It's it's and not a good idea. We got a better way to do this than that, and especially with a company like Energy Partners. It's not a very good steward of its uh, business. Exactly. John, you call Port Arthur, Texas, the nexus of climate change. In recent times, there's been extreme storms, hurricanes, uh, flooding has become a serious threat to the community's well-being. Prior to our interview, you shared with me a moving statement about your dread of June. What's your concern? Well, as we get closer to that time of year, this is the better time of year because right now the Gulf is cool, 60 degrees. You don't have to worry about hurricanes. But as we get closer to June and the Gulf heats up and warms up, it's almost like you dread the 1st of June because that's the opening of hurricane season. And, you know, you start getting small storms spinning up as early as April and sometimes in May. And you never know when one of those storms has your name on it. <laughs> it's going to come to your town or your city. And given what happened last year with Hurricane Laura that hit Cameron, Louisiana, which is a mere 43 miles from here, but the winds were still pretty severe. There was some damage. And then less than two months later, 15 miles east of that in Creole, they were hit again. I mean, whoever heard of that? Who, I've never heard of that. Two storms hit in that close proximity in that close amount of time. And the city of Lake Charles was extremely impacted by it, as well as Cameron, Louisiana. And they are still trying to recover. And we're still trying to recover from Hurricane Harvey. And that was 2017. Well, even with Hurricane Harvey, there's something to do with the recovery funds that were supposed to go to the Port Arthur residents. What happened to those recovery funds? I mean, these residents are not able to afford to rebuild or relocate. Well, the first thing of it was is that we didn't get around to getting all of the people who qualified 
to have their homes repaired, we didn't get around to all of them. You still got some people with substandard homes, homes that were damaged, some still with blue roofs on them, the tarp or plastic they put over it to keep the rain out of it. And they have, and there's no chance for them to fix it themselves. And there's no help coming from the government. But to make matters worse, when the second round of funding came from HUD to the state agency that oversaw it, the general land office, Houston and Port Arthur, Texas, Jefferson County in particular, and Port Arthur, Texas specifically, received zero dollars, nothing. And yet the guidelines say that you want to help areas that have a high level of either poverty or low to moderate income people that really need the help and services. And they sent zero dollars here. But yet whiter neighborhoods and communities got considerably more money. Take, for instance, Bevel Oaks, Texas, that's a little bit to the north and west of Beaumont. Bevel Oaks' average home value is $144,000. The average home value in Port Arthur is less than sixty. The average income in Port Arthur is around $35,000. And the average income in Bevel Oaks is $77,000. They got more money per capita than Port Arthur did, yet they have only 500 homes, only 400 of which were damaged, whereas we had over 22,000 homes damaged in Port Arthur. There's no fairness, justice, or equity in any of that. So my organization, along with several others in Houston, are taking up the fight to hold uh, HUD's feet to the fire to put more money into these communities and do it, because if not, they're violating our civil rights in terms of lack of, of discrimination and fairness in terms of distribution of that money based on their guidelines. Thank you. We're going to take a break real quick and we're going to come back and talk about what Pecan, the Port Arthur Community Action Network, is some of the other actions that y'all are doing in regards to Simpra LNG facility against the Koch brothers, many other things. Everyone stay tuned and we'll bring that conversation right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to Port Arthur, Texas, Community Resistance versus the Climate Change Nexus, with host Jessica Aldridge, myself, and guest John Beard Jr., founder and CEO of Port Arthur Community Action Network. If today's show has sparked an interest, we recommend that you also check out Eco Justice Radio's Plastic Plague series, where we speak with other leaders living in the Permian Basin and the Gulf Coast areas who are standing up against the oil extraction industry and connecting the dots to the plastic boom. John, we've been speaking in regards to the work of Port Arthur Community Action Network and some of the campaigns y'all have been working on. Simpra LNG facility, there's been advocacy against them and the dangers to the community and the problem of exporting all over the world 11 million tons per year of fracked gas. Can you talk about that? Yes, uh, that's, that's very dangerous to do it. It's dangerous to bring it into our community because in their processing it to be able to do it, they're emitting significant amounts of compounds that are hazardous to our health. Once again, it's like I said, you can't subtract by addition. And everyone wants to keep coming here and locating and putting in these facilities and not using the best available technology or technology that would reduce that load. And while we wouldn't want, we'd love to not have them come at all. Once again, state of Texas never met a company or permit it didn't like. So we've got to do the best we can to minimize the impact on people and on citizens. 
And right now we're still waging a fight with them uh, in the courts to uh, look at their air quality permits. There are some recent developments. We don't know how that's going to shake out, but we've got six months to try to resolve this. And if not, then you know we'll have to see. But they're not in a good position right now because they don't have a source to sell the oil to, I mean, the gas to. They don't have a facility built and their permits being hung up by Pecan and myself. So they're not in the best of positions. They're, they're trying to find a way to make it work, but it ain't working. So we're going to continue to stay engaged in that fight to try good. to protect lives and health. Very good. And then there's Oxbow Calcining, Calcining? Right. a Koch Calcining. Brothers company. Calcining. Right. It's a Koch Brothers company. And they have a facility that produces petroleum coke in Port Arthur. Processes is, petroleum coke. And what is the loophole in the Clean Air Act that has resulted in 10 times the sulfur dioxide pollution than that of its industrial neighbors, the other neighbors or uh, producers around them? And what is your organization, Pecan, doing to rectify these issues? Well, basically, they've gained the air quality meters in that area. To enter it by fooling them into believing that the emissions were considerably lower by changing their operating parameters. But to make matters worse, what they're doing is, is that they have been permitted at such a high amount in terms of that 11,000 tons or better a year that they're putting of sulfur dioxide and particulates and compounds, and they're not even being required to install equipment to reduce the amount of pollution they make. So Pecan and myself have taken it upon ourselves and with our lawyers with Lone Star Legal Aid out of Houston to pursue a civil rights case against them based on Title VI. And basically, it's we're saying is that we all have a right to breathe clean air. And these federal organizations or federal government bodies like the EPA have an obligation to protect the air we breathe to protect our lives and health. They're not doing it. They're not enforcing the air quality rules or actions with the state agency. And therefore, Oxbow gets to get away with basically what we call murder by killing people because they're poisoning the air that they have to breathe. So that case has been picked up by the EPA. And then there are a couple of other instances too. With Valero Refinery, we just won what I like to consider a major victory there because the EPA sided with us that TCEQ standards of how they weigh toxins and how they look at their permits and permitting is insufficient to actually protect the lives and health of people. And they are being told to revise them because they're basically trying to skirt around the rules of the Clean Air Act. So we're winning some small but significant victories to get these people to clean up their act and to protect the air and water and the environment in which we live here in Port Arthur. And I love this. This is the, the conversation around solutions, the conversation around community impact and being active and pushing back against these massive corporations and being able to tell our audience that this is possible, that people are doing this, that these wins are real. And so what's happening in Port Arthur, Texas and similar communities, it, yes, it's devastating, but the community action is extremely inspiring and that there's hope. So to you, what are the solutions to move forward to protect the communities and to transition away from fossil fuels? What I believe has to happen based on what President Biden has said with his Build Back Better, and as we say in the movement, Build Back Fossil Free. You can't build back better unless you build back fossil free. He's got to take some actions to reduce the amount of pollution and to usher in an age of clean, green fuel and energy. Because if we don't, by continuing to allow the Permian climate bomb to continue to put more natural gas into the air and sell this, 
by continuing to burn hydrocarbon fuels, we're continuing to exacerbate global warming, which affects us all in terms of the air quality and in terms of living here. You know, when you mentioned earlier, I said that we're at the nexus of climate change. It's because in the last 15 years, we've had five major hurricanes and probably equally as many smaller ones that just grazed the city, but caused significant damage. Then you had Hurricane Harvey, which dumped almost five feet of rain in the vicinity of Port Arthur. Then because of our proximity to the Gulf of Mexico, and if you ever come here and I take you down where you can see it from a high vantage point, it is flat as the land as you could want to see it from the ground to the sky. It's just perfectly flat. So when these storms come in, the storm surge comes far inland. Uh, matter of fact, for Harvey, the interstate highway runs about 24, 25 miles north of the Gulf of Mexico through a little city called Winnie, Texas. Well, there's pictures you can go find on the internet where on Interstate 10, the water, you can see white caps where the highway would have been because the guy was riding his boat down the interstate. And that's 25 miles. So we have a storm protection system to protect us from that. But when you have that levee, it keeps water out, but then it's like being in a bowl. So you've got to get the water or the rain that falls inside the bowl out while you keep the water that's outside the bowl from getting in. So all of that because of climate change, the effect of the pollution from industry and being at the nexus of all of this, the expansion of the petrochemical industry and exports and all and pipelines, we're in the midst of all of it. We see it every day. We experience it. We smell it. We know what it's about. Other people may not. And that's why we say you're sacrificing us so you can make money or you can have a job or you can drive a car. But there's a better way to live. A better world is possible. And we want to explore that. So we're going to have to work to clean up the air here, to hold the regulatory agencies' feet to the fire, while also encouraging state and federal officials, to, especially the president, to usher in a clean, green age of efficient fuel and energy for this country, to save the planet. So talking about transitioning away from the fossil right. fuel in a way right. that, that protects workers, how do you see that transition looking well, you're going to have to. I like to look at it with what's going on with Manchin. Manchin's raising holy you-know-what because of them wanting to get away from coal. And we have to. There's, there's no such thing as clean coal. It's dirty. Even what it does to get the coal is dirty, and it harms the earth. But Manchin's concerned that his people aren't going to have jobs. And if his people don't have jobs and he doesn't do anything, then there's political repercussions. So, yeah, he's going to be objectionable to this, among other reasons. But what we have to do, being an old politician myself, you have to be able to sell him on the fact that, okay, we're going to get out of it, but your people are not going to miss a paycheck. They're going to have a pension. They're going to be able to pay their mortgages and send their kids to college. We're going to make sure this transition does not leave them behind, that they're going to get the job and the training in the new age and the new economy, the green economy, so that they don't miss a beat. So we have to figure this out and have what I consider an equitable, but also a restorative justice aim. So cities and communities like Port Arthur that have been left behind and devastated, don't get left behind and devastated in the new petrochemical-free age. And that's important that we be given the leverage and help to move in that direction. And that's going to be difficult because already now there are signs that things are going to go by or they're trying to do business as usual. But we have to stand up and speak to those issues and say no. And that's one of the things I want to say, Jessica, about communities like ours and communities anywhere else, that Billy Preston said it well, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. If you don't do anything, nothing is what you're going to get. So you have to stand up 
if it's just one person like a John Beard or whatever in your community where you live, that person's got to stand up and, and join with someone else. And we've got to join arms and hands and speak the truth to what's going on and show that there is a better way. Because if we don't do anything, then all of us are going to be affected. And then what good is that going to do us then? What good if we lose all of the polar caps or if we sea level rise inundates Port Arthur to where now, you know, the city can't even be here anymore. That seawall protecting the city is 15 to 17 feet high. And already they're planning to finance raising it another two to three feet because of climate change. Those things are significant. People can talk all they want and deny it, but the science is real. And if they still deny it, then they have to ask themselves, what if you are wrong? Can we afford to have more superstorms like Harvey dumping five feet of rain in an area or storms that are so big they take up the entire Gulf of Mexico with winds 180 and 200 miles an hour? Can we afford that? We can't afford it. Can we afford more fires out in your country and where you live? Can we afford more fracking and causing earthquakes in places that have never had earthquakes? We're doing this to ourselves and only we can change it or we can stop it. But we've got to have the collective will to do it and to stand up, speak truth to power, and actually get out there and do the work. You mentioned restorative justice. That might be a new term for some of our listeners. I would like to dig into that a little bit. What do you mean by restorative justice? What does restorative justice look like? Not only, I mean, yes, in in the Port Arthur, Texas community, but also around this country, around the world. What are we expecting when we say, Restorative justice needs to exist. I, I like to say that's a term I coined. Some people call it equity. I call it restorative justice. And it's based on the biblical principle that when you damage or hurt or harm someone, you have to make recompense. The scriptures say there can be no forgiveness without recompense. If I hurt or harm you, Jessica, I've got to do something to repair that hurt or harm. And we've been hurt and harmed here by breathing this air, by being exposed to contaminants, by not getting the jobs and opportunities so we had a better chance at life because of skin color or whatever factors. And Port Arthur has been sacrificed and left behind because of it, while the rest of the world is going on its merry way. And other countries need to have a sense of restorative justice, too, because they, too, have been deprived. They've been exploited for their mineral resources to enrich multi-billion dollar multinational companies and big wigs and tycoons and some U.S. stock and shareholders. So there has to be a sense of justice to help them. The exploitation cannot continue because at some point, those who are exploited are going to rise up and they're going to fight back. So rather than allow that to happen and allow a revolution to take place that would damage and hurt us all, why don't we find a way to have some equity and fairness and justice in it by restoring those communities and people that have been hurt by this industry and then make sure that in the transition to the new green economy, that they have a role in place in it. Everybody should be able to breathe clean air. Everybody should be able to have clean water and live in a clean physical environment. Everybody should have the right to have a roof over their heads, food in their bellies, and education for their minds. But there are some people, as John Kennedy said, I think it was, that want to rule the world. And the way they do it is by controlling the mind and controlling the resources. We can't allow those people to win. We don't have a choice. The future of humanity is at stake. and We can't allow them to win. But that's what it looks like to me. We have to restore, make it better. Restore the earth, restore people, and treat everybody the way, as the word says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
For those in similar situations in their towns, trying to move on campaigns, trying to push back against these massive fossil fuel corporations, these petroleum uh, companies, these plastics industries, uh, these extractive natures, these polluters. How do you go about creating political shifts and gaining allies? What, what words of advice would you give our listeners? You've got to challenge them where they are. And where they are is their supply chain. From the ground, we said the best way to solve this problem is keep it in the ground. And, so, and to keep it in the ground, you've got to challenge the permits. They can't be permitted to drill. But if they do drill, then you've got to challenge the permit to build a processing facility because that's in the supply chain. Drilling and not having anywhere to send it and to process it and make a product that's sellable does no good. So you've got to challenge the permit to build these chemical plants and processing plants to do it based on the fact that the pollution they create and put in the air is hazardous and toxic to human life and the people and the environment. And then you have to look at the end user. When you talk about plastics, why do we have single-use plastic? One of the things I noticed when I was at COP26, they, had, they didn't have water fountains. They had places where you could get water, but you had to have your own water bottle to refill it. So you didn't just walk up to a fountain and just drink like that. And they didn't use bottles. They used recyclables or they used multiple-use bottles that you had your own bottle rather than have these massive things that just with the, you know, the one-use one bottles and some of which are, you know, disastrous and bad for our environment, but also bad for our health. Now you're finding microplastics in the ocean, in the fish, and even in our bodies. That should tell us something, and we got to move away from it. So we challenge the supply chain from the ground to the end user. And if we stop it out of the, if we keep it from coming out of the ground, and we get the end user to understand that plastic bottles, plastic bags, and all of that are bad for the environment and bad for your health, and give alternatives to that. Instead of the plastic bags, the reusable fabric type bags or something else. But we have to find a better way and we have to implement it and we have to do it now. So people in their communities are going to have to be more self-aware and conscious and engaged in their environment and what goes on. I know they're busy. We all are busy. But we can't be too busy to save ourselves and to protect the only earth we have. So last question here. Where can people get more information on your work? On, on what your organization is doing and other resources that you might want to recommend to our listeners? Well, they can look us up on social media, on Facebook, and you can look me up as John Beard Jr. Or you can go to our site, Environmental Justice, where you'll see the plume across the sky from Oxbow Calcinining on a beautiful, clear Texas day and this white, opaque plume obscuring the sun. And then you can go to Pecan's site on Facebook. At, uh, at Pecan, Texas, I think it is, if you look it up. But it'd be Port Arthur Community Action Network. We're also on the web at www.portarthurcan.org or www.pa-can.com. Got to always remember that. That's the danger of having two websites. But one was given to us, so we weren't going to turn it down because we want to get the message and get the word out to people. But uh, get a chance to look and see some of the things we're doing. Uh, matter of fact, a few weeks, you'll be able to look and see 21 the year in review for Pecan and myself. And it's quite lengthy, quite extensive. And we've done a lot of good work in the last two years that we've kept up with this. So uh, I urge you listeners to, you know, take a look at us and check out Port Arthur Community Action Network. We're doing good work down here in Southeast Texas and Port Arthur. 
but there's a lot of work that needs to be done all along the Gulf Coast and all across America. We're not by ourselves here. We're unique, but we're not alone. Well, I thank you for the amazing work that you are, you and your group are doing down in Texas. And I really huge thank you for being on the show today. It's been a great honor to have you on Eco Justice Radio. Thank you so much, John Beard. Thank you all for the opportunity. Appreciate you all and good luck. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to our guest, John Beard Jr., and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Port Arthur, Texas, Community Resistance versus the Climate Change Nexus. Please connect with us on social media at Eco Justice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, you know what to do. Subscribe to the podcast, share the episodes, get that information and knowledge out there, and help us continue our efforts by making a donation to the show at ecojusticeradio.org. You have been listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on kpfk.org, kpft.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack Ite, producer and co-host Jessica Aldrich, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.